a visitor with us today. I want to kind of let you know where we're at on this deal. We have been for quite some time in the book of Romans, and now that we have completed it, we are going back and kind of doing a large sweeping overview of the text. And so, like for instance, today we're going to be in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13. And when we were there originally, I think we spent nine weeks in those verses. And so I'm going to, by necessity, move over some things pretty fast today, maybe make some references without doing a lot of exegetical um, background on those. But if you have any questions, by all means, get with me after the service, and we can even point you to the original sermons online if we need to do that. We're just trying to get a picture for kind of the big themes in the book of Romans. And in doing so, each day we're starting with a review of the whole book up to where we're at at this point. So, Um, This morning, without any further uh, delay, let's continue in this overview. Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13, servanthood unto promises, glory, and hope. And when the Apostle Paul writes this theology to the church in Rome, he begins by addressing them and saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel, but instead that he is eagerly obliged to it. A gospel that is the very power of God unto salvation. The wrath of God revealed against men and the righteousness of God revealed when he makes propitiation. Literally, he pays the debt in full for his people, ransoming them back to himself, purchasing our lives with the very lifeblood of Christ in order that he who is by the very definition of his being just, might also be the justifier of men. For Abraham believed God, but that belief was reckoned to him as something more. It was reckoned to him as righteousness, the very power of God on display. Faith being credited as the very righteousness of God and having been justified, having been propitiated, having been bought by this gift We rejoice. Literally, we boast in the very hope of God. We boast because we were dead in sin. We were born in the image of Adam. From dust we came, and to dust we would return. But in Christ we live. Because in Christ we died. Man, we are those that know our identity. That by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we literally died with Christ. We were buried with Christ And we are risen with Christ by the glory of God to walk in the newness of life. What a profound identity it is. Life from death. God calling into existence that which did not previously exist all by the power of His Spirit. For it certainly isn't going to be by the power of men. You see, Paul teaches the church in Rome that men are enslaved. It's a dreadful type of slavery. It's not a slavery that comes from without. It's a slavery that comes from within. The terrifying thing about the nature of the enslavement of men is that they're enslaved not against their will, but by their will. For Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But as saints, we have a a new being. He says in the very next breath in chapter 8 verse 9 that you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And because this is true, we can say with all confidence and boldness along with Paul in chapter 8 that all things work for good. 
For we know, in verse 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Are you called of God? Do you love God? If so, then friends, I can tell you with certainty that you have never had a bad day. For you are called, not arbitrarily, but according to the very purpose of God Himself. Scripture tells us that salvation belongs to the Lord. In Romans chapter 9, verse 16, Paul says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but upon God who has mercy. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that mercy and compassion are not opposed to the justice of God. Friends, your God is not schizophrenic. He is not just some days and compassionate as though that is opposed to his justice on others. Mercy and compassion are not opposed to the justice of God. Friends, mercy and compassion are part and partial to God's justice. To the point, if mercy and compassion does not exist, you are dealing with something that is definitively not the justice of God. Our God will not be accused. Instead, he will be glorified by his creation, both for his wrath and certainly for his mercy For concerning the glory of God and salvation, Paul's heart breaks for the lost. Particularly the lost among his brothers. For even with all of the information about the law of God that they had, lacking the real intimacy and relationship of salvation, they replaced it with a system of their own making. They called that system law. And as fancy and detailed as it was, it proved to be insufficient. For God's glory is not in man's law. Instead, God's glory is in the word of faith. It is near you, in your heart and in your mouth. For if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. For with the mouth one confesses, and is saved, and with the heart one believes, and is justified. As Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And knowing these things, knowing these things, that we were saved unto a purpose, and that salvation belongs to the Lord, and to the Lord alone we are bold in our evangelism. We understand the difference between means and cause. We are the means, but Christ is the cause. Friends, don't sell being the means short. It is only the pride of the flesh of Adam that demands to be more than simply the means that God is using. Don't sell the means short. Being the means is beautiful. Paul himself reached back to the prophets and said, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Will all believe? Absolutely not. For faith comes through hearing, and hearing not through the word of the preacher or the evangelist, not through the word of me or you, but faith comes through hearing, and hearing, Mount Zion, comes through the word of Christ and of Christ alone. So for us, success is 
Not necessarily people accepting the good news, though we pray fervently with Paul as our heart breaks that they would. Success is the faithful proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ to the lost and dead. We trust God himself to produce the effect. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Well, what about Israel? If God is faithful and we can trust him to bring about the effect and the desired end of the gospel, that which we can not do of our own accord, if God is faithful to do this, if we can trust him to do that, then what about Israel? A people that has been marked out and set apart to him from their very beginning, from the very establishment of their nation. What about them? When so many are lost, if God can be trusted to produce the effect in evangelism today, What does the fact that so much of Israel is apart from him and clinging to a hollow shell that they call law, what does that speak to the faithfulness of God? What about Israel? Let me tell you something. Christ is faithful. He has not abandoned his people, Israel. Instead, he is using them to show mercy and compassion for a season to Gentiles like me and you. He's not abandoned his people Israel. Instead, Paul says that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have been grafted in to the salvation of Jesus Christ. And the result is that the Gentile church suffering well and enduring to the end will be the very thing that provokes the Jew to jealousy on the day that Christ returns. When they look on him whom they've pierced and their heart is broken over their disbelief and he opens a fountain of mercy, pleas for grace and a nation is saved in a day so that Jew and Gentile together may be perfectly reconciled to Christ. Church, Gentile church, God saved you unto a purpose. And according to Romans chapter 11, that purpose is to be the body that provokes to jealousy. You are the living sacrifice. You are the miracle that God is doing. He's not just moving people from one list to another, unsaved to saved. Instead, he is creating. He is creating the new birth, new life, the new creation, something out of nothing. He is creating not simply a designation, but living beings, sentient beings that are aware, living, feeling, desiring the very things of the kingdom where before they only desired the things of the world. In God's perfect design, these creations are unique. We are not all the same but instead perfectly equipped for the role that we were designed for. So go forth and fulfill your role. Be the very thing in the kingdom that God called you to be. Let your love be genuine. Literally, the Greek means don't pretend. Don't pretend it being something you're not. Certainly, if you're not born again, don't pretend it being a Christian. But if you are a Christian, don't pretend at fulfilling a role in the kingdom that God hasn't designed you to fulfill. 
Let your love be genuine. Let it be agape, not just warm, fuzzy feelings, but something much deeper and more profound than that with great intention of the will, first desiring and then out of that desire doing the very best for your God, for your brothers, for your sisters, even for your enemy. As Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Even be subject to the governing authorities that God has ordained for your own good and owe no one anything except love. For God has high expectations for his people. Yes, God saved you for a purpose. And he has expectations for the purpose being fulfilled in you. He has high expectations for both the strong and the weak amongst his people. For the strong... He expects them not to despise the weak, but instead to bring them alongside and grow them up so that they may be strong for the weak. He expects you not to pass judgment on the strong, for you are certainly in no position to do so. But instead, to understand this, that salvation is indeed nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's time to wake up. Paul says it's time for the church to awake from sleep. For if we live, we live unto the Lord. And if we die, we die unto the Lord. For we are the Lord's. And each one of us, me and you, your children sitting beside you in the pew, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, Do not pass judgment on one another as though you or I were the decider between good and evil, but instead decide never to be a stumbling block or a hindrance to a brother. Friends, there is a priority that Paul teaches in chapter 14 and 15 to Christian character. Indeed, for freedom Christ set us free, and yet it is freedom that is not the highest priority in the kingdom of God. Oh, Christ died that you may have it, but it is not his highest priority for you. Love, agape, is. We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. But that is not out of obligation to the weak. Instead, it is out of obligation to Christ, who did the very same thing for us and into whose image we are currently being conformed so that the God of endurance and encouragement may grant us hope and harmony with one another, that with one voice in accord with Christ, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For that is the very thing that Christ came to do, to elicit the glory of God. Let's continue looking at him eliciting that glory in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13, where Paul writes and says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcision. And I know your Bible probably says a servant to the circumcised. That is not simply a poor translation. That's a mistranslation. He became a servant to the circumcision to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, 
Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul says, for I tell you a truth. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcision to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul writes to the church in Rome about the truthfulness of God. Looking back over millennia of God promising things to men, promising things to his people Israel, all out of the good character of his being. All of these things had not yet been manifest in such a way that they could be clearly seen. But now they have. Paul speaks to the church at Rome and he says, I want to tell you about the truthfulness of God in the things that he has said. And I want to do that in two different ways. To tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcision in order to fulfill Two purposes. Number one, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. And number two, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And these seem on the surface to be kind of two bookends that are relatively far apart. Not just the promises made to Israel, but specifically the promises made to the patriarchs at the very beginning. And then on the other end, that... Out of these promises, the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So let's begin with the first facet that Paul talks about, that Christ became a servant to the circumcision to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. The first thing you have to ask yourself is, who are the patriarchs? The Greek literally translates to the fathers, the fathers of Israel. That would be Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his 12 sons that headed up the 12 tribes and King David himself, the very fathers to whom the promises of God came. And what were the promises of God to these men? It all begins in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where the Lord said to Abram, the Chaldean, who was soon to become the Hebrew, the crossed over one. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. This promise was... Massive promise 
in a nutshell. It began to unfold over the centuries. God revealing more and more and more of what it contained until several centuries later we get to the people of Israel, now a great nation, millions strong in the wilderness after the exodus, but before they entered the land that had been promised them, where in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, the Lord speaks his promise to them and says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Christ became a servant to the circumcision in order to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, in order to confirm the promises made to the fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the heads of the twelve tribes, and later to King David. And here you see God doing the exact same thing in give or take 1500 B.C. as he is doing in the first century A.D. He looks at Israel and says, I have chosen you. And I have chosen you out of people over all the face of the earth, not because you were greater in number, not because you were better, not because you were special. As a matter of fact, you were the least of all peoples, but I am choosing you for the same reason that I'm doing what I'm doing 1,600 years later in the New Testament. And it is in order that I may keep the oath that I swore to your fathers. This is the reason that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. God was doing it in the desert. He was keeping the oath. He was confirming the promise. He was showing himself to be truthful. But the full exercise of that promise, the full confirmation of the truthfulness of God in everything that he had told them did not come until Christ. For Christ became a servant to the circumcision in order to confirm the promises that were made to the patriarchs. In Romans chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says it like this, For the promise to Abraham that his offspring would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That being faith in Christ. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void because the promise was never based on the law. It was always based on grace being manifest through faith. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. It is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that is the fulfillment of the promises of God to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to all 
all of the fathers of Israel. Or if you want to take it the way that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in his second letter to them in chapter 1, verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes for all of the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put also his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as guarantee. Or as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Friends, there are many promises of God. There is one promise of God. And what I mean by that is the singular promise of God to man being the person of God himself. Friends, when you look at this book, what you find in the final analysis is that what God is promising people in salvation is himself. He's promising them himself in a very particular manner where they have been reconciled to him, that in his justice he may give himself to them, and that be good, and not be destruction. There is a singular promise of God. But because the promise is himself, the promise is infinite in its nature. It has many facets. It has many forms. It has benefits that if we spent our whole lives exhausting our mental and spiritual abilities to list those benefits, we would not even begin to scratch the surface on what the fullness of the promise of God is to us. But the reality is this. Anything good that God has ever promised any man is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's it. There is nothing else. Friends, let me tell you something. If you find yourself seeking for God, then do that. Seek for God. Don't seek His trinkets. Don't seek His things. Seek for Him. Despise what you cannot keep, that you may gain what you cannot lose. He made incredible promises to Abraham. He made incredible promises to Isaac. He made incredible promises to Jacob. And if you understand that promise as a list that can be put down on paper, you have missed the point. The promises of God to the patriarchs were nothing less than God himself. And it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and no one else. Christ came as a servant to the circumcision, literally to the law of God. He came as a servant to himself in order that he might confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. But not only so, also that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. 
And at this point in time, you think to yourself, especially if you're the typical student of the Old Testament that we have a tendency to kind of bring up in, you know, southern fried Christianity today, you think to yourself, well, all these promises in the Old Testament are made to Israel, and so here's this statement that Christ came in order to confirm the promises, show God was true, man. When he said this stuff, he meant it, and he was going to fulfill it, so Christ came to confirm the promises that were made to Israel. And then in the very next breath, actually with the same breath, same sentence, Paul says, and he came that the Gentiles, the very polar opposite of Israel from a cultural standpoint, that these people, people like you and me, ones that Christ referred to as dogs upon more than one occasion, would glorify God for his mercy. When we say Gentiles, man, what do Gentiles have to do with it? All these promises are to Israel. And to that, to some degree, I would say amen. It is a promise to Israel. Jesus himself said salvation is from the Jews. And yet, the fact of the matter is, what Scripture would tell us is the Gentiles have everything to do with it. Not just in the glorifying of God, but even unto the salvation of Israel just as the salvation of Israel has everything to do with the Gentiles glorifying God for his mercy, to the point that both are mutually dependent on each other as the means of God's salvation to them. You see, the promise that came to the patriarchs that God was confirming in Christ has always contained a promise to the Gentiles. Yes, no doubt the focus is on Israel. Man, that is the promise to which we are grafted in, but in his perfect wisdom, that grafting in is prophesied as well. The day that Israel was established as a nation and came out of Egypt by the millions, this little group of 12 families, that had showed up about 400 years before, comes out a mighty people. And yet they came out a mixed multitude with all sorts of Egyptians and every other manner of Gentile that you could imagine in their midst. They came out a people with one law and one hope. Look with me, if you will, this morning in Numbers chapter 15. In Numbers chapter 15, in verses 13 through 16, the Lord writes right here in, in, in the very, you know, in a book that is, it, that is concerned with the very numbering and the law of national Israel itself. The Lord says that this law that's being given to the Jews is the same law for the Gentiles. In Numbers chapter 15, verse 13, Every native Israelite shall do these things in this way, in offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger is sojourning with you, or anyone is living permanently among you, so if he's just hanging out for a while, or if he's here for good, and he wishes to offer a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. For the assembly... 
There shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations. You and the sojourners shall be alike before the Lord. Man, that'll make your dispensational lawn chair fold up real bad, real fast. Man, God speaks to the people of Israel in the book of Numbers. Like the one that starts off with us listing down the ranks of national Israel. Here's your law, and guess what? It shall be the same for you as the foreigner in your midst. For the assembly there shall be one law. Why? Because you and the Gentile are the same before the Lord. Remember what he promised them back in Deuteronomy? He's confirming that promise. He's moving that way right here. What did he say? I chose you, but not because of you. I didn't choose you, Israel, because you were different than this group of Gentiles over here or because you were different than that group of Gentiles over there. As a matter of fact, you're less than a lot of those. I chose you because I'm confirming the oath that I made to Abraham. God looks at Israel and said, I chose you not because you're good. I chose you because I'm good. Guess what? There shall be one law both for the Israelite and for the Gentile. You will both be the same before the Lord. So I'm going to stand here and tell you today, friends, Gentiles, he chose you not because you're good. He chose you because he's good. He's good. He's confirming the promises made to Israel. And he's provoking the Gentiles to glorify him. There is one law. There is one hope. For if this law and this promise is the very promise that God will give you himself, then out of one law for both Jew and Gentile comes one hope for both Jew and Gentile. And it's not the law. It's the one who fulfills it. In Isaiah chapter 9, in verses 1 through 17, it is written that there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, but in the later time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light is shown. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, Nephtali and Gentile, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. One law, one standing before God, one hope who is nothing less than God himself, both to Jew and to Gentile. It has always been this way. 
This is not something new where we had the Old Testament that that was specifically about the salvation of the Jew and the New Testament that's specifically or at least mainly about the salvation of the Gentile. Friends, it has always been about God reconciling a people to himself by Jesus Christ using the means of Israel to bring in the Gentiles that the Gentiles may be the means by which Israel is provoked to jealousy and all together are saved, which is why. When God promised in Genesis chapter 12 to Abram, when he said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In this very promise to Abraham is bound up the gospel itself because Jesus was going to be the one who was the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Paul says to the church in Galatians about that very promise to Abraham, he says this, chapter 3, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Paul says by the Holy Spirit that when the Lord said to Abraham, go from this place to the place I will show you, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you, and in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Paul says that was the gospel proclaimed to Abraham. It's always been this way. Gentile, fellow Gentiles, in the flesh, we qualify as dogs. But your salvation is not an addendum. It's not an extra. It's not an add-on. It's not a bonus. It was the very purpose of God in Jesus Christ from the very beginning. And so we see, once again, in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, but we're going to continue this time all the way down to 17, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. This this promise is guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Well, who are they? Not only the adherent of the law, that being his physical offspring in Israel, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you... Abraham, the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not 
exists. Now, when we consider the statement that God made about Abraham, that he has become the father of many nations, we in the flesh almost always go immediately to the nation of Israel that came out of Jacob and the nations of Arabia that came out of Ishmael. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4 what, Paul, what God was talking about was something much bigger than that. Because the context for the means in which he becomes the father of many nations is not by having kids that have kids and have kids and procreate and procreate and procreate until you have a bunch of nations. What he was really talking about here was the fact that this God is using what he is doing in Abraham to call into existence that which did not exist. Israel, Ethiopian, Canaanites, Romans, Anglo-Saxon mutts. He has made you the father of many nations. The direct result of a salvation that comes when God calls into existence that which does not exist. Christ became a servant to the circumcision to show the truthfulness of God in two ways. That he would confirm the promises made to the patriarchs and that he would cause the Gentiles to glorify him for his mercy. And these two things are not separated from each other. They are bound together because it was the very promises to the patriarchs that God was confirming that brought mercy to the Gentiles that they might glorify him. So, being predominantly Gentiles, I don't think we have any sons of Jacob here today. If we do, we probably don't know it, right? It's like way back there somewhere. So, being predominantly a Gentile crowd, let's then consider the facet of this that is pointed most directly at us, that Christ came to do something that should cause a response out of me and you. Like this isn't just, you know, this isn't just high theology. This isn't just stuff that you know so that you can say you know and you're smarter than the next guy and can win, you know, whatever particular doctrinal argument you're in. This is supposed to actually cause something to happen. If you're a Gentile, the fact that Christ came as a servant to the circumcision is supposed to provoke a response in you. It's supposed to provoke a response in me. And what is that response? It is to glorify God for his mercy. So let's just say this right off the bat, that being a Gentile alone is not enough to qualify you to have the response provoked in you. Just, just because you were born, you know, not, not, not Israel, not a Jew, just because you were born that, that is not sufficient to see this response out of you. You have to be a Gentile who has been shown the mercy of God. This is a prerequisite. If God hasn't shown you mercy, then you can't glorify him for his mercy. And so if, if, that's, if that's you this morning, if you're a Gentile that God hasn't shown mercy to, then you, you, and you don't need to stop listening at this point 
and go, okay, well then this doesn't apply to me because I haven't been shown mercy, so none of this really matters. No, friends, listen, the word is powerful, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word itself is sufficient to produce the result for which it was sent. So please listen. Listen to what happens when Gentiles are shown mercy. Listen to the things that they receive from God. Focus on those things and consider whether or not those things are to be desired. And I think that you'll find that they are to be desired. And then chase God down for them if you need to. For he is willing, and as we saw earlier in the book of Romans, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's even as we have seen testified this very day. So, Christ came as a servant to the circumcision in order to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs and out of those promises which contain good things for the Gentile to elicit the glory of his name from Gentiles who have been shown his mercy. And there is great scriptural precedent here. Gentiles glorifying God is not exclusively a New Testament concept. This promise has not been laying fully dormant. But even before its fullness of being fulfilled in Christ, it was already functioning as the foretaste of glory divine. And so Paul calls back. He calls back to the law. He calls back to the prophets. He calls back to what we would refer to as the Old Testament. And he gives four different citations out of the text where we see Gentiles being encouraged to glorify God for the mercy that he is showing them, mercy that comes through the promise to Israel. He says this in verse 10, as, or in verse 9, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Here, Paul makes four citations out of the Old Testament. The first one he draws out of 2 Samuel from the lips of David, the king of Israel himself, praising God for his deliverance of Israel. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name, David says. Praise overflowing for the goodness of God out of God's king. Praise that is not simply spoken to Israel, but spoken to the Gentiles. (coughs) Secondly, Paul pulls from the song of Moses in Deuteronomy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now if you know anything about the song of Moses, it is a loaded gun. There is much to be considered. The song of Moses is the song of the rock. Of Christ Himself. It is the song of warning. It is a song of life. And in the Revelation, you see in the heavenly scene before the throne, the people of God and all the heavenly hosts together singing both the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And they do so because the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb is the same song. 
For all the promises of God are fulfilled in him. Which is why in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4, at the very beginning of the song of Moses, Moses says, The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. But the song of Moses is also a song of warning. A song of warning of what turning from faith in God would cost Israel. He says in verse 15 that Jeshurim grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. And then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. And yet even in the midst of the warning of wrath for departing from faith in God, the song of Moses is a song of life. For in verse 45 through 47, it says, When Moses had finished speaking all of these words to Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Guys, the song of Moses is prophecy. It is dire warning. It is the very word of life to Israel themselves. And yet seemingly out of nowhere at the very end of this song comes rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. It's from Deuteronomy 32, 43. Rejoice, this people, O nations, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. And because he does that, the Gentiles are encouraged to rejoice along with Israel. God's faithfulness to the promise into which they are grafted. He pulls from King David. He pulls from Moses. He pulls from the Psalms. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Here, Paul is quoting from Psalm 117. The shortest of all the Psalms. As a matter of fact, it's the shortest chapter in all of the Bible. And in Psalm 117... The psalmist says this, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Psalm 117 sets in the midst of a group of psalms that is traditionally amongst the people of Israel known as the Egyptian Halil, literally the Egyptian praise. And it's because in chapter 113, it begins with the scene in Egypt and begins to develop the doctrine of what occurred in the hearts of the people as they were moving forth from there. It is such an important section of the Psalms that it is for millennium now been traditionally sung by Jews at Passover. 
They sing the first portion, verses or chapters 113 through 114, before the Passover meal. They sing chapters 115 through 118 after the meal. I don't think it's coincidence that the Holy Spirit led Paul to quote here when eliciting glory from the Gentiles for God's mercy from Psalm 117. For this is almost certainly the praise that Christ led his disciples in immediately before he went to Gethsemane when they were leaving the upper room after the Passover meal. It says that before they left, they sung a hymn together. This was almost certainly it. The very praise that Christ himself led his people in before he left to become the servant to the circumcision and fulfill the promise of God. This is a call for Gentile praise. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And then lastly, he calls back to the prophet Isaiah. The root of Jesse will come, even him who arises to rule the Gentiles. And in him will the Gentiles hope. The prophet of the kingdom prophesying the coming of the kingdom's king, the very Messiah, the ruler in whom is all of Israel's hope and in the ruler in whom is all of the Gentiles' hope. This is nothing new. It's been part and partial to the promise ever since the beginning that mercy would come to the Gentiles and because mercy came to them, it would cause them to glorify God. And so the question that we have today for ourselves, quite frankly, where the rubber meets the road is, are we glorifying God for his mercy? If we are, there is a certain thing that it should look like. Paul says that Christ became a servant to the circumcision to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs and so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy and then he calls back to scripture and gives examples and in each one of these is a command in which we should be glorifying God. And so the first one is this, therefore I will praise you, David says, among the Gentiles and sing your name. If we are glorifying God for his mercy, it should elicit the praise of God to come from us. Now, when we think about praise today, we typically think about worship music, and that's great. We're going to get there in just a minute. But that's not really what is being spoken of here. The concept of praise that is being spoken of here is assent. It's agreement. It's to confess that God is right and friends, when you look at the unfolding of the promise, all the way from Genesis up until Romans, whether it be the fall of mankind, whether it be the destruction of the earth and the salvation of Noah and his sons, whether it be bringing Egypt to its knees with all of the humanity that went along with that or the conquering of the promised land, whether it be back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 9, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, therefore it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. When you look at the way that the promise came to us, there is things in it that the flesh of men do not want to give assent to, namely... 
first and foremost, that they're sinners apart from God without a hope in this world. And yet, he says, when you see these promises being confirmed, what it should do is cause you to praise. It should cause you to give assent, to confess with God that He is right and understanding that God is good. As Moses wrote, the rock, His work is perfect for all His ways are justice even if I don't like them, even if you don't like them. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. And when you can confess that, that God is good in His promise, and God is truthful in His promise, and God is just in His promise, then it leads not simply to intellectual confession, but it leads to an ascent that is full of joy that we can actually call praise. If you're going to glorify God for His mercy, it must be in praise. But He doesn't stop there. Again, he calls back to Moses. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So there must be praising if we're going to glorify God for his mercy. There must be assent given that he is right and that he is good and that we agree with what he has done in bringing the promise to us. And then it must produce in us rejoicing. Which is obviously something that is different than praise because both are mentioned in a list side by side with each other. Rejoicing is different than assent. Rejoicing comes from the word in the Greek to mean gladsome or cheerful. Literally to go about being cheerful because of what the Lord has done. Friends, we all have tough times. We all have bad days. It is not the character of the Christian, nor is it the purpose for which Christ came to be a servant to the circumcision that we should all walk around looking like Droopy Dog or Eeyore. Man, we are a people that is gladsome because of what the Lord has done for us. Generally speaking, we are a happy people. That doesn't mean that you have to walk around like a grinning idiot. That's not what I mean. Some of the happiest people I know aren't necessarily the most people I know, but they are happy and content in the things that the Lord has done, where He has placed them, what He has given them, and certainly in His salvation. They're the kind of people, and you hate to be cliche, but they really are the kind of people that are glass half full. Why? Because they are certain that all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So when things get tough and when things get nasty and when, when trial gets real, they really only get so far down. Because there is a certainty of knowing that Christ came as a servant to the circumcision to elicit out of me glory for His name and part of that glory that He was eliciting, and He's not going to fail is not only a scent that He is right, but gladsome cheerfulness that says that in being right, He is good. And I would have you note specifically that when you look at this, and we're not going to get into it today because we don't have time, but when you look at the song of Moses, when he says rejoice, be gladsome, be cheerful, it's smack dab in the middle of the portion of the text that is of the direst warning. 
Man, when things are tough, when they are hard, now is the time to glorify God by being glad in what He has done. They are commanded to rejoice. We are commanded to rejoice with them. But He doesn't just say praise, and He doesn't just say rejoice. Then He reaches back to that very thing, man, good grief, that very thing that almost certainly Christ and His apostles sang together right before He went to His suffering. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol Him. To praise and extol. We already looked at praise. What does extol mean? And extol is connected to praise, but it's not the same thing. It's certainly very different than the praise of verse 9 that means ascension and confession. What extol means is like, supercharged praise this is this is praise on steroids man this is you know supersized kind of praise what the concept of extol means is to heap praise upon praise upon praise upon praise upon praise stack it higher and higher and higher so that it becomes the overflow the excess of the heart. As a matter of fact, this is the word. It's not used very often. This is, I mean, it, it literally means like just this abundant, ecstatic kind of praise. As a matter of fact, this is the word that was used when speaking about the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2, where the shepherds were in the field <laughs> keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising. It's the same word in the Greek, extolling, just heaping praise upon praise. And if you've ever thought... When you sing those Christmas carols, when you read that scripture, if you've ever thought about what it must have been like to be in that Judean countryside and just seeing the heavens open and just masses of heavenly host, angel upon angel glorifying God in a way that is not tied to this fallen creation, what it must have been like, that's what this means. And guess what they were talking about when they were doing this? Nothing short of the fullness of the promises of God being confirmed in Jesus Christ. This is what it produces, not just assent, not just gladness, but continual, ongoing. Like Lydia said today, I just couldn't quit repenting. I couldn't quit repenting. I couldn't quit repenting. I won't quit repenting. Not only does it come from the angels, it, guess what? elicits that kind of response to the glory of God in those shepherds. For it says that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned glorifying and extolling God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. It just blew their top. Gentiles, we have to respond 
to the mercy of Christ shown to us by glorifying God in confirming the promises that were made to Israel into which we have been engrafted. We have to give assent. We have to we have to go about in gladness because of what he has done. It should produce in us an emotive response that overflows in praise upon praise upon praise so that the root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles and in him will the Gentiles have hope. you got to praise you've got to rejoice you've got to extol you have to have hope and not just some empty hope as though it was a wish or a pipe dream but the kind of hope that is being spoken of here means the desire of some good thing with the full expectation of obtaining it not an empty hope but a hope that is based on on the certainty of Jesus Christ, a hope that is based in the very root of Jesse himself. As Isaiah said, and Paul quotes out of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 10, this is why you should hope. This is why you should praise. This is why you should extol. This is why you should rejoice. Here it is, Gentiles. This is it. This is the gospel. This is Christ Jesus fulfilling the promises of God to Israel and to us. The very thing that causes us to rejoice. This is it. This is your hope. Here it is. Here's the gospel. It's nothing less than God himself. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. Decide equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be a belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, Jesus Christ himself, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal, not just for Israel, but for the peoples, Gentiles, He shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. God has high expectations for his people. Jesus Christ came, specifically Gentile, so that in him fulfilling the promises made to the patriarch, you would be provoked to a very particular response. 
A response that would later provoke Israel to a very particular response. It is ours by calling. It is ours by destiny to be those that God has said would glorify Him for His mercy. If you're going to glorify God, there are some necessary components. It takes the praise of ascent, that we agree with God, that what He has done is good. It takes the rejoicing and the gladness of hearts when we realize that that goodness has come to us. That moves on into something more than simple rejoicing, but extolling where you just can't get enough. Where no matter how deep you look into the glories of God and how good He was in bringing His blood to you, that it just gets better and better and better and there is something more to praise for at every moment and every second and every day. Amen. In such a way that it brings you to a hope that is not a wish, but instead is the firm expectation of the certainty of its fulfillment. A hope that does not come from you, but comes from Him. And Paul prays for it for the Christians in Rome. I pray for it for us. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Christ became a servant to the circumcision. And in doing so, he proved the truthfulness of God and the promises that he made to the patriarchs. He elicits glory of himself from us praising, rejoicing exulting and hoping because it was always supposed to be this way such is the nature of his good promise I could go on but I digress man let me tell you something God's good man if the Lord calls you you come running You consider these things. If you deem them to be good, go seeking. You will find. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we stand in awe of your gospel. Father, I pray that we do glorify you. I pray that what we do today, whether it be in praise or in in baptism, in the testimony thereof, Lord, in the testimony of your word, Lord, I pray that you would find your people are glorifying you and that you indeed are glorified in the midst of them. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.